Our scripture today is from Esther 5, 7 to 10. I'll read. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it, it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And that's the word of God. Welcome, guys. We are currently in the middle of a series through a rather obscure book, Book of Esther. I don't know how many of you guys had a chance to read through Book of Esther before we went into the series. But one of my favorite Old Testament narratives. Uh, and and, and we're, today we're going to be in the fifth chapter of the book. So if you're just catching up with us, let me just give you one minute summary and where we land in chapter five today. So one minute summary. So through, through this story, we're told that Esther was an orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. They're both Jews living under a Persian influence. And from early on, Mordecai had told Esther, her younger cousin, sort of a mentor father figure, that not to let people know that she is uh, from the people of, people of Israel. She is Jewish. Uh, and so Esther kept that secret through different events and happening. The queen of Persia gets demoted. She gets kicked out because of this foolish decision by the king. And Esther finds herself uh, becoming the next queen. Right? This, this crazy story, that's chapter 1 and 2. And in chapter 3, we're there two weeks ago, as things were finally looking up, Esther again finds herself stuck in an age-old hatred between her people and people of Amalekites. Haman is another character of the story who is the descendant of Amalekites, offers the king of Persia lots of money. King needs money. He lost this big war. He needs money, offers the money for a decree to wipe out you know, his enemies, the Jews, uh, from the whole empire. So the foolish king, again, he, he doesn't break character. He's foolish, makes this decision, not realizing the consequences of that decision, not realizing Esther, his queen, is also Jewish. But the once the decree hits the street, Esther is now asked by Mordecai, or sort of forced to make a decision, right? This is sort of a defining moment of her life. Will she choose to remain quiet and sort of try to blend in and live as the queen? Or will she choose to identify herself with Yahweh and her people? And we've seen it last week in chapter 4. After much struggle, she chooses, right? Esther tells Mordecai, I'm going to do this. I'm going to approach the king. I'm going to speak for my people. And this, and, and, and basically, even if, if it, even if it means I perish, I'll perish, I'll approach the king. And it's in this very context we begin chapter 5. Uh, and, and our brother Mike read a portion of chapter 5, but I think we're going to be in the whole chapter. We're going to go through the whole chapter. But verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, just leave it open and I'll walk us through the story. As to having fasted three days, she calls 
her people to fast and pray for her. She fasts herself. Esther finally risks everything and puts on her royal robe and approaches the king uninvited. We talked about this last week. If you were going to visit a king, even if you're the king's wife, even if you're the queen, you had there was a proper protocol that you needed to follow or the king had every right to have you executed on the spot if he didn't like the fact that you showed up uninvited. So Esther risks a life, uh, goes there, puts on her robe. She carefully prepares every move and stats, stands at the inner court of king's quarters. King Xerxes, from across, sees his wife in his presence, and he's glad. Verse 2, it says, the author tells us, Esther won his favor right away, and the king held out his golden scepter, letting her know she is invited. So far, so good. So the king, in the, in the passage, is glad to see his, see his wife and wants to know, I sees his wife, you know, visiting him unplanned, wants to know, what's the occasion? Why, why are you here? We, we didn't talk about this. As the response to the, to the king's uh, request, or king's question, is an, it's anticlimactic, right? She doesn't quickly ask the question. She waits for a better setting, better opportunity. Here's a great sort of practical lesson, right? Uh, if you have a request, a hard request, or some kind of request, whether to your spouse, to your boss, or to your friend, make sure you, you tell it at the right time. Timing is everything, right? So she carefully planned every move. Uh, and she waits. And she simply invites the king and Haman to a private dinner. And, you know, those three days of fasting and praying, we, could, we don't know, you know what was happening in those three days because the author doesn't talk about it, but we know there, there's a transformation. There's a sense of wisdom and confidence that Esther shows in starting chapter 5. In fact, there's a complete transformation from Esther that we know to Esther of chapter 5 and on. In fact, all the intricate details, if you actually read through chapter 5, there's all these intricate details of Esther's actions from here. But it makes it clear that she has thoughtfully considered every step. You know, like if you know me, I'm not great with details. I'm a big picture guy, so Lois handles all the details and it drives Lois crazy because I'll ask her like same question over and over again. Well, Esther... Um, she's good with details. She, I think that's Lois's dream, for me to be better with details. She's great with details. And after the initial dinner, verse 6, the king inquires after the first dinner, Haman's there, king's there, they're drinking, they're eating, they're in a good mood. King again asks, like, what, do you, what do you need? What do you want? And, and again, Esther, carefully planning, her careful plan has worked. In fact, this time, he writes a blank check. He says, whatever you ask, I'll do it for you. Whatever you ask, half of my kingdom, I'm going to do it. And, 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 and all of us, the audience, is we are at the edge of our seats in verse 7, right? You know, we're like, okay, this is the moment Esther's going to ask. Esther's going to tell the king her true identity and tell the king to save her people. And Esther goes in verse 7, my wish and my request is done, done, done. And she goes, if I found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, what does she say? Let the king and Haman come to another dinner. I will prepare for you. Again, despite the king's vow to fulfill whatever she asks, she once again defers 
her request or later time and promises that at that next dinner she's going to make her request. Again, it's not hard to see this transformation of who Esther was in the beginning of the story to who she is now in chapter 5. All the way up to chapter 4, right? Until Esther finally decides to identify herself with Yahweh and identify herself with God's people, she has been largely passive. She has not initiated any action from chapters 1 to chapters 4, but simply followed the path of least resistance. Yet here, the once timid, passive, tentative Esther gives way to an assertive, fearless, shrewd woman of great wisdom and confidence. We could all see that, right? In fact, throughout the book of Esther, one commentator says, Esther is referred to by her name 37 times in 10 chapters. But in only 14 of those occasions, those references, she is referred as Queen Esther. All but one of those 14 occasions, references as Queen Esther, occurs after chapter 5, verse 1. So there is this shift, there's this monumental shift in the story. The moment she makes her decision, this difficult decision to commit herself to not her greatness, right? Because this is sort of what she had to survive, she had to live for her greatness. But she decides, no longer my life matters, it's about God's vision, God's calling, God's people. When she makes that decision to live for the greatness of God in his kingdom, there is a transformation. Majority of the narratives, narrative thus far has been dominated by two men, Mordecai and Xerxes, right? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, even chapter 4, Mordecai is commanding Esther. But at the start of chapter 5, Esther becomes the main character, the focal point of the story. It's Esther who calls her people to fast and pray and seek the Lord. It's Esther who meticulously plans and risks everything to approach the king boldly, confidently. And there's this transformation when people decide, I'm no longer, no longer going to live for my greatness, but I'm live for greatness of God. And friends, I think what one of the things that we can learn from our text is that this transformative power is not simply available to someone like Esther, but it is also made available to us. But the, the important question we have to ask ourselves, I think the, these are the questions we ask ourselves daily, are we willing to lay down what we desire out of life? Are we willing to lay down our vision, our purpose, our values, and really exchange those things for God's purpose, God's vision, God's mission. And we spent a huge chunk of last week's sermon, this idea of living in our true identity, right? Another way the scripture talks about identity is image. We talked about that last week, the image of God. In fact, our first page of, of the Bible proclaims that all of us are made in the image of God. That's a declaration. How, that's how the story of humanity begins. And a few pages later after that in Genesis 3, that wonderful identity or image of God that has been embedded in each of us have been marred by Adam and Eve and their action to take 
one thing that God had told them not to take. So, so the greatest impact of sin, the most devastating reality of sin is that it has marred this identity, this image of God that has been embedded in each of us. Right, this temptation to take on our own identity, right? That's really what Genesis 3 is about. Yeah, the fruit and, and this forbidden fruit and looked good and it tasted good. But really, the, the, the ultimate narrative about that interaction between Adam and Eve, serpent and God is Adam and Eve choosing to say, I no longer want to live with this identity or image of God. I want to create my own image. I want to create my own identity. And since that very moment of disobedience, the very image of God has been marred. And humanity have lost our way. So what's happening in Ukraine? Well, we've been following the story. We've been praying for them. What's happening in Ukraine? What's happening in other parts of the world? Right? We, 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 we talk about Ukraine and we should and we should pray. But there are other parts of the world that don't get the, quite the coverage uh, that Ukraine is getting. They're suffering people all over the world. What about just 40-mile drive up north to, 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 to North Korea. What's happening there and the coverage they, they don't get? What about all the brokenness, all the child slavery and human trafficking that goes on in this city, in our neighborhood? You see, all the pain and suffering, brokenness, all come back to this humanity's inability to see the intrinsic value in how we are made, in the image of God. Maybe that seems too far removed. Maybe Ukraine seems far to us. What about driving? Anyone drove to church today? Drove here? Sunday's not bad. Sunday traffic's not bad. Every time I get behind the wheel of my car, I encounter broken images of God to my left, to my right, to the front, to the back. These bus drivers... These taxi drivers, these coupon delivery people, they honk, they cut me off, make illegal turns, park their cars in the middle of the street where we can't get through. And I see just broken images everywhere every time I get in my car. But what's more interesting is I'm appalled, as, as I'm appalled at type of driving that goes on in the city, I realize I'm no different. Right? I become more aware of my own broken image of God as I drive. Right? Um, I honk at people who make illegal turns, and I'm like, how can you do that? And then you know what I do next? I cut someone off because I want to get ahead of someone else. I speed up. I don't wait. I make illegal turns without second thoughts. I run lights at night because no one's there, and I think, oh, I can just break rules. I park illegally because I don't want to pay five bucks for an hour. I'm cheap. But, but, but that's just my driving. And truth is, that's mere reflection of what's often happening in my own heart. When no one's watching, because, because when I'm driving, no one knows I'm a pastor, unless like we're going to retreat together or something. No one knows I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm hidden behind. And then windows are all tinted. There's no like illegal tinting in Korea, I guess. Nobody knows. There's no King's Cross pastor sign on my license plate. No. So I, 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 I sort of do whatever I want. But that's a reflection of how I think about just a lot of things, how I handle life. And it is reflection of my broken image, the, the broken image of God that's in me. 
And our passage, as we read on in chapter 5, offers a very clear example of another man whose image has been marred, completely marred. His name is Haman. Greed and pride has marred this man. So verse 9, we're, we're just moving along with it. So the, the, there were two parties. Queen Esther, there were one party. Queen Esther says, come to the next party. King, I'll let you know. Bring Haman again. So Haman, in verse 9, he goes home after this wonderful party. Imagine being invited by the president, prime minister, or your, your CEO of your company. Just you, your CEO, and the wife of your CEO. Imagine how excited Haman would have felt. He goes home. The text tells us he goes home with great sense of pride and joy. Haman is literally on the top of the world, right? Literally, there's no one more powerful outside of the king. Even the king is, it has to rely on his wealth, right? Even the king will listen to his advice. He's invited to a private dinner with the king and the queen, not just once, but twice. He's achieved everything he's ever wanted in life. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he's revered. And his very success has blinded him. He has no idea what's coming for him. Verse 9, on his way home, Haman, with this excitement and joy and pride, goes on his way home. He passes by the king's gate. Guess who's sitting at the king's gate? Who's at the gate? It's Mordecai. And apparently, by this time in chapter 5, Mordecai has ended his fast. He's no longer mourning, no longer crying, no longer in his sackcloth and ashes. But he's actually, what, back in his seat, King's Gate, doing his work. And the text tells us as Haman passes by the gate, apparently everybody stood up to pay homage to Haman. Everybody knows Haman is big deal. He's important. But one man refused to get up. One man refused to even recognize Haman. Mordecai, right? He's not even scared. He's not even trembling. He's not even begging for, for, for their own people. He simply looks and looks away. And this drives Haman crazy. The Hebrew word for Haman's fury, anger, is hema, hema, which literally means poison. He was full of poison for Mordecai. In fact, in verse 13, when he gets home, he finally gets home. He's got his wife, his friends. His Haman's telling him about this party. He tells his family, all of this honor, all of this recognition, all of this joy means nothing to me as long as that man Mordecai is still alive and well. This is nothing. Friends, success, pride, and entitlement has a way of blinding us, creating these blind spots in, in all of us. No one is immune to pride. Blinding you and I to believe, blinding you and I to believe that, to believe that we deserve more than what we actually deserve, that we are bigger than who we actually are, right, has this ability um, to really blind us, to not see the reality of how, how, how things are. Um, and Haman, right, 
has been blinded by this sense of pride and entitlement to believing that he is actually deserving more than, more than he actually does. Um, Haman has no empathy, right? And throughout the story, Haman has no empathy. He simply wants Mordecai and the rest of the Jews gone. Doesn't matter how it's done, he wants them gone. One commentator comments in Haman's sort of anger towards Mordecai. He says, and I quote, The satisfaction of human pride in its demand for honor and respect outweighed the value of human life in the story. That's very clear. And, and I'm sure we've heard this before. This is not a new idea. Friends, pride is detrimental not only to our health, but to our faith. In fact, so much of, again, we're going back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's decision to take the one thing that God told them not to take was driven by this thing called pride. But at the same time, what makes pride so dangerous and difficult, it is very hard for us to recognize pride in our own lives until it shows up, until it is revealed, until it just kind of comes out. Two weeks ago, I feel like I'm like confession time for me. Like two weeks ago, driving is like level one. This is level two. I had a, we've been having bad internet connection for, for like months. And I hate calling SK, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, I finally got around to calling SK. SK's our provider. I hope no one works for SK here. Um, I, had a, I had a good conversation, right? Initial conversation, good conversation with the operator. I was like, yeah, we don't have good internet. Can you help us? So the operator says, well, you need a new modem. Your modem is really old. You need to up your data. If you pay a little more, you'll be able to get this done. Pretty easy. The bad news is you'll have to wait two weeks. And I'm like, where are we? In America? Two weeks? I mean, seriously? Like, you should come next day, right? And I was like, okay, fine, all good. We wait two weeks. Long story short, uh, the guy shows up. I wasn't home. Lois is home. The guy came, internet guy came, and, and obviously he was misinformed. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Another, we missed, we missed this opportunity. In fact, he, he installed something else, and I got charged more. So I'm already annoyed that it took all this time to, to get this. I'm a valued customer at SK. I've been using it for like 10 years, right? Um, I'm already annoyed, right? So I call them. I'm still nice. I'm still firm, but I'm nice, right? Because I didn't talk to this operator. It was some other operator that made the mistake. So I was talking to this operator in my, you know, fifth grade Korean. I'm talking to this operator. Uh, I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be firm. And, and I, I tell them the story. I'm, I'm like, I waited 10 days. You told me we had to do this, but this wasn't done. We're paying way more. So we just need this fixed. I'm, this is my third time calling about this, right? Um, and then the lady on the other line, the operator on the other end, not in so many words, says, well, one, we didn't do anything wrong. Two, uh, you were misinformed uh, by your own knowledge. And, and, and three, if you want a better coverage, not only you have to wait probably another week, but also pay extra for the technician to come back. And I go, okay. All right. So I tried to explain to her again for another five minutes. Like, no, this is what happened. I had several conversations. I, this is my third time being on the phone. And I tried to explain to her, right? And the lady goes, well, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. This is, this is what you got to do. You got to pay a little more. You got to figure this out. At this point, this is my third conversation. I've been on the phone, you know, over 30 minutes with this person. And I'm thinking, okay. And I'm thinking in my head, I've been a... VIP customer with SK Telecom for 10 plus years. Both Lois and I, you know, we subscribe to their telephone, all this stuff, right? And, and I have these, I'm getting these thoughts. I'm getting, I'm getting really annoyed, right? Um, 
And, and at the end of our conversation, I basically was like, I want to speak to a manager. And I guess in Korea, they don't do that, but I'm like, I want to speak to a manager because I don't think you understand how valuable I am. I don't think you understand what's happening here, right? Um, and, and, and at that moment, you know, even though the operator was just doing her job, I mean, she was just, you know, this is what she does every day, talking to people that are upset, angry. I just felt like she wanted to annoy me. I just felt like she wanted to make my day worse, right? Um, which wasn't true. She probably was trying to do a job. But something in me flipped at that moment when I realized I, this person doesn't get who I am. This person doesn't understand how valuable I am. And I didn't care to hear about any of their challenges or any of the reasons. I just wanted things done. I demanded that I didn't want to pay for another visit, that I didn't want to wait another two weeks. And I look back to these interactions. This happens, this is not just, this is one conversation with my, you know, this happens with par parking addresses, or this happens when I go order and my order is wrong. And I realize I still operate so much from this sense of entitlement, whether that's being like a foreigner in Korea, whether it's, I have this sense of entitlement that just comes out. And I'm surprised by it. I'm like, oh, man. At that moment, it feels good. At that moment, it feels good to be like, yo, I'm right. You're wrong. You're not good at your job. When I, when I sit back and rewind back, and I realize, man, there's so much sense of entitlement. And, and, and again, it's so easy for me to justify those moments, right? Those interactions, those intense interactions. It's easy to blame other people. It's easy to blame this operator for not knowing the right information. It's easy to chalk it up as having a bad moment. I, I'm tempted to do that, but the truth is, we are a lot more like Haman than we realize. And whether that's the way we treat our coworkers, if you're a teacher, whether that's the way we teach, whether that's the way we approach our workplace, whether that's the way we, we, we talk to people that provide services for us, people who work for us, work under us, perhaps our own children. You know, Emma is first grade. She is like a little teenage, teenager. She is such a good talker. And I'm like, at the end, I'm like, okay, I don't want to explain. After like 30 minutes of explaining something, I'm like, I'm not explaining. I'm done. Yo, this is how it's going to go. I don't care. Next time you talk, time out, right? Like I am just like dominating this conversation. And then, and then Lois looks at me, Lois is just like, oh my goodness. Perhaps the way we talk to our spouse. Friends, I think we need to take inventory of how we treat those around us. How we really, our relationship with what this cult, what, 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 this, what this thing called pride and allow the truth of the gospel to wash away our sense of pride and entitlement again and again. Otherwise, we will continue to do all of these Christian activities. We'll come to church, sing these wonderful songs, give our offering, go on missions, and, and support and serve and, and do all of these things without experiencing true transformation. There are a lot of Hamas in the churches. A lot of Hamans that give big tithes. A lot of Hamans that go on mission trips. Listen to Pastor Tim Keller when he talks about this thing called pride. And he says, unless we believe the gospel, not just listen to the gospel, but we believe the gospel, we'll be driven in all we do, whether obeying or disobeying by pride. 
self-love, or fear of damnation, apart from grateful remembering of the gospel, all good works, giving, serving, whatever, you fill in the blank, are done then for sinful motives. Mere moral effort may restrain the heart, but does not truly change the heart. Moral effort merely jury rigs the evil of heart to produce moral behavior out of self-interest. It is only a matter of time before such a thin issue tissue collapses. What Tim Pastor Keller so eloquently, he's so eloquent, it's amazing, right? What he's basically saying is all of what we do unless we are willing to attack this pride intentionally, we're willing to look at ourselves honestly and, 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 and truthfully and allow the gospel to renew us, all that we do, all the religious activities that we do, may keep us in line to do the right things here and there, but it will not change our heart. There will be no true transformation deep inside. I need to hear that. You know, talking to that lady, I realize my heart has not changed. I'm still that like 18-year-old, unsaved, arrogant. I could, you know, when I was talking to her, I'm like, I was using the formal language, but I was just so rude. Uh, you know, you could use, you know, in Korean, you could, you could use a formal tone, but you could be so rude. I'm so good at that. I'm like, oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? What if that girl came to our church? Like, game over. We have to close down. And our passage in chapter 5 concludes with Haman foolishly building a 50 cubits high gallows. That is ridiculous high gallows, right? He builds this gallows because out of this anger and fury and rage, because he wants everybody to see Mordecai's head on that gallows. Yet little did he know, he was building his own gallows. His own gallows of death. Friends, the only way out of pride, entitlement, and any other ungodly imagery is to place our lives unto Jesus. We talked about this last week. Jesus, the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The perfect image of God. The perfect God enter creation to undo the consequences of our sin, but also to renew these tainted images of God that we display. I don't know about you, but I need this reminder. I need to be reminded that we are not our own saviors. When we read this story, we are not Esther's often. We're like Haman, and, and this is why we need Jesus. And I believe Esther 5, it's a wonderful build-up to Esther chapter 6, but has wonderful reminder to really reflect on this week. Like, as you're sitting here, I've reflected on my week as a monologue to you guys, but would you reflect on your week, your interaction? Maybe that coworker, you cannot stand that coworker. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe things have been rough at home. And you're annoyed, and you, you, you're done, you, you don't know how to approach it. Maybe it's relationship with your parents. 
I mean, I, I could tell you more about my relationship with my parents, man. That, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. But this is a great opportunity for us to process these things. And let's just spend a few minutes as worship comes up before Pastor Mike leads us into time of communion. Let's spend a few moments kind of taking inventory of our heart, asking reflective questions. God, have I honored you in the way I've treated other people? Have I honored you in the way I've approached relationships in my life? After a few moments, um, Pastor Mike will lead us into communion.